Hi, I'm Jason Chung, head of the esports practice at Zuber Lawler. And I'm Philip Milestone, counsel at Zuber Lawler. Zuber Lawler is a law firm, and like any good lawyer, we have a big disclaimer for you. We are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. Until you pay us. So everything here is for entertainment purposes only. Again, until you pay us. This podcast is brought to you by virtualtimes.com. Virtualtimes.com, your news from the metaverse. Welcome to What the Meta. Today's guest is Evan Matthews, uh, co-founder uh, co at Macroverse and someone using Web3 in innovative ways to bring comics and storytelling to fans. It's a real fun interview, so stay tuned, Metasapiens. But before that, hello, Philip. How are morning. your holidays going? Good morning, Jason. Uh, my holidays are going splendidly, thank you. I am a proud citizen of Northern California where we are wet, but otherwise perfectly okay. Uh, Hope the rest of the world is doing all right. There have been some interesting Arctic cyclones and whatnot in the world. I've got family um, stuck where they were traveling. Uh, my parents live in Florida, but they are still in Wisconsin because they can't get out. So uh, holiday sounds like a, an adventure for sure. Yeah, I uh, actually had a, had a nice uh, longer stay in Miami than expected, actually, where I got uh, promptly sunburned. So uh, back, nice to be back in the uh, in the very cold Northeast. So, um, you know, one of the things that I was doing uh, on that trip, obviously, I was, uh, you know, out and enjoying the sun uh, to my detriment uh, and probably to my skin's detriment. But, you know, the other thing I was doing was consuming media. And one of the things I was doing on the actual uh a plane uh, because I'm a nervous flyer as I was watching Top Gun Maverick for the seventh time uh, just simply because that seems to make the turbulence feel a little bit more you know it's just more like organic <laughs> actually makes the plane ride more fun um, and it struck me that you know that movie is something that after even after seven times on a flight I'm still not tired of like hmm. for me it's pretty much the pinnacle of like traditional media just simply because there's no part of that movie that drags for me. This is not a this is not a paid advert for Top Gun Maverick. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, but actually, it got me thinking, Paul. You know, we've been talking for months now about the metaverse and how it unlocks new forms of interaction. We've had artists on, we've had business people on, we've had creatives on, um, and we've been talking about the need for new content. But the question that I have for you for this episode, especially in the lead up to our guest, is, you know, how does this actually manifest? Right. So. You know, we've talked about people creating worlds and all that kind of stuff, but obviously in a video game, which, you know, the industry that I'm most familiar with, somebody's creating that for you, right? There's a, it's a curated experience. There's a creative director. There's some, there, there, somebody's making the assets and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when we're talking, Talking about the metaverse, are we talking really about a Star Trek holodeck where you just talk to like a computer and it's instantaneous? Or are we looking at more of like a D&D or magic type world where, you know, you have a collective delusion, I guess, and then you fill it in with like stuff? I, I don't know. I, I, confession, I have no idea what I'm talking about with D&D or magic. So, Philip, I mean, uh, you know, how does this how does that work and how does does it relate to the metaverse at all? So collective delusions, a good way to describe it. Um, does it relate to the metaverse? I think yes, but like everything else does. I, I'm not so sure that we need new content. I think there will be new content because there's a new medium, but I don't want to suggest that there's sort of a dearth of creativity at the moment. Would be at books. Be, I mean, obviously, uh, classic Hollywood is pumping out movies that you love. And, you know, I would say that they're not bad at it. Um, but the same way that we saw sort of the 
abolition of the old studio system open up creative pathways for actors and 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 writers and directors and you know and crew and whatnot i hope we'll see something similar here right as soon as you were and actually it happened in sports <laughs> once you had you know contracts uh, abolished um or at least certain contracts abolished and type of um committed i don't even want to say but that's the wrong word involuntarily committed players playing for specific teams for a long time all of a sudden sort of other teams Reserve got better plus. Yeah. yeah. And so I see, I feel like here, you know, we're going to see the same thing. This, this is a medium that will sort of open up new ways to be creative. Uh, so, and I, I don't, I don't know that there's a, that we need new content. Like I said, it's more number one, hopefully, right. The goal, well, I shouldn't say the goal. One possibility is this sort of ownership up and down the chain where it's not going to be the case that you'll have a few gatekeepers. Cause I feel like moving from the old studio system, moving from the old reserve clauses in sports, that you have sort of this this sort of slow march towards um, democratized ownership. Uh, that's a weird way to put it. But if you have sort of more people with skin in the game, it motivates more people to do this thing, right? It's not that there's only one winner out of a million. Now there's sort of one, mil one winner out of 800,000, right? <laughs> Still ridiculous odds, but more people are motivated to jump in because the possibility of winning something is bigger. I think mm -hmm. that that is likely the case in this, this new medium, right? That is the, the metaverse, because it's also, it's, it's old medium at the same time, old media. I, it's not like you're not gonna be able to watch a movie in the metaverse, right? You could very well just walk up, you know, plug in and, you know, watch your avatar, watch a movie, which might be weird, or it could be sort of you sort of inhabit your avatar and watch the movie in the metaverse, right? I can see that where you and your whole family get together and you're sitting in a room and you're all over the earth, but you're watching the same movie. Like that's a metaverse experience, right? That could be really cool. Yeah. Next step is, you know, you become, you know, maybe an actor in that, in that movie, in that film. Um, I was, uh, I'm spending a lot of time again, given the rain, looking at media, trying to find things to watch with my children. And I was, you know, they, they're always talking about Stranger Things, but quite honestly, I don't, my kids at least aren't quite there yet. But one of the things that Stranger Things did, um, and I want to say it was, is it Bandersnatch? There's Bandersnatch and Babadook. And I think Stranger Things was a Bandersnatch. Oh, so you don't know these ones? Oh, so, so. No, no idea. Was it Stranger Things or was it Black Mirror? <laughs> I get my media confused. Anyway, it was basically this, the same type of show, right? <laughs> kind of, but this, but this one in particular, I think maybe it was Black Mirror, but it was, it was interactive. And the whole thing was with your smart TV, you could choose which direction the characters went in, right? Very much choose your own adventure, right? Not a new idea, but done really interestingly. And the story was a pretty looped out. Um, we actually did it when it first came out years ago, at least like four years ago. And we got down like those giant post-it notes and we went through all the possibilities because we were all very confused, but it was really fun. And I can see something like that happening in the metaverse, but instead of me and my controller actually like living it, going for it. So in that sense, I don't know that we need new content. I just think we're going to experience it differently as consumers. And I think creators are going to experience it differently as creators. And I think in that sense, I think that leads in to sort of the, the D and D and magic aspect because D and D it's specifically magic less so. And pardon us listeners, if you're familiar with D&D, &D, Jason, um, for his many, many wonderful attributes, has never played in his life. So what happens is you get a group of people, right? At least one of whom, you can have multiple, but usually it's one, uh, takes the role of Dungeon Master, and they will sort of run the campaign. They are the one who've written the broad outlines of this story. You're a group of people, 
you randomly meet in a pub in some you know medieval city full of elves and you realize oh no there's a a poor child crying and why is the child crying oh well his family has been horribly slain by some terrible creature quest time quest 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 you know at the end twist is actually the child's a terrible creature oh no fight the big boss everybody wins so along the way you gain experience points it levels you get objects magical swords, magical cloaks, you know, your, your wizards get better spells, your bards sing better songs, your, your warriors, your, your, your fighters, you know, get stronger and tougher. Um, and in the middle of the story, your characters can say things like, you know, what's that? And the DM will say, oh, it's, it's a, it's a dark forest. And they say, let's go in there. And the DM's like, oh crap, like I don't have anything for that. But you take them through there and they will meet people, right? And you've sort of got these broad outlines again of your story that it could be that you're on the path from point A to B, but along the way, there's A1, A2, A3, A4, and your characters just interacting with each other, usually being ridiculous. Um, my children play, and there's a lot of uh, references to poop and whatnot because they're 11. But I used to play when I was in high school, references to poop as well. And either way, it's fun because you get to sort of build this world with your friends. Like you said, a collective delusion, which is actually a really good describer for it. Magic's a little different. It's usually, I mean, it's one-on-one, -on -one, you can't play multiple players. Um, and the idea is you have these different sets of cards. You have to expend mana to use the cards. And there's attacks and defenses and strategy. In that sense, it's like Pokemon and sort of other, and Yu-Gi-Oh! and other card games. Um, but still, I guess Magic's connection to D&D &D is it's fantastical. Wizards, dragons, mm -hmm. vampires, whatnot. Anyway, here we are, humans, doing collective delusions with our imaginations over tabletops, right? And I think the metaverse is just, it's a new tabletop. It's not that you're making new content, it's just a new place to play. And the same way that we, in a sense, can sort of upgrade tabletops, you've seen it, like you can play at a kitchen table, sure. Or, you know, people have these elaborate sets where they're, they actually build their dungeon, right? And they build their little characters. That's kind of an upgrade. Um, there are augmented tables at the moment where you can sort of see certain things happen digitally. Then um, I feel like these are just sort of incremental steps towards this new platform upon which to play. That's the metaverse. Content's going to be the same, except that it'll take advantage of the new technology the same way that I think that Black Mirror episode, like Black Mirror has been doing, you know, mind bending stuff for a while. They did the sort of whole smart TV interactive thing because they could, right? They couldn't have done that 20 years ago. They can do it now. In 20 years, when we have a more advanced metaverse, they'll do something there. So <laughs> this is me being very long winded. Hey, everybody. Uh, but the idea is, I think that you know, media is just as creative as it ever was. I don't think we're lacking there. I think that what we are seeing now is new technology coming in, but it's not just sort of cooler cameras and cooler toys. Now there's actually a way to hack ownership. That we can do with Web3. Insofar as that marries well with Metaverse, I think those will come together. So you'll have, hopefully, again, one possibility here is an intricate world of democratically owned creative people right some making assets some doing experiences some doing stories some doing you know all the back office stuff but all in a sense kind of owning what they do now that's a recipe for disaster but it's also sort of a possibility for uh, magical um, content and i feel that as our listeners will hear in our interview with Ibn, that um he's working to sort of find the middle ground right and i feel like his company is is doing its best to sort of bring the right people together let everybody be creative, but understand that we all have different strengths and we're going to sort of take our strengths and put them in different places. So some people, you know, just working to write, others are looking to produce and looking to sort of commercialize and capitalize. And 
I think that's possible because A, people are just as creative as they've always been, but B, now we have this new thing. You know, Philip, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that you mentioned it's it's the new tabletop, actually. It's, it's you know, it, it's really interesting because everything about the metaverse up till now, in, including the people we've talked to, uh, it's all been fascinating about, you know, building different worlds, building different assets, you know, being able to use it and interact with it. But, you know, the storytelling aspect of it has been uh, not as emphasized. And, and I think that's just a common thing, right? Because we're so focused on the tech of it. You know, uh, we're so focused on, you know, Mark Zuckerberg creating legs for your avatars and things like that, right? Like the top line stuff. But, you know, ultimately, is it fun uh, is a core question, right? And the reason why Dungeons and Dragons, which frankly, uh, you know, collective delusion or not, if you tell it to somebody in a vacuum, it sounds a little bit crazy, right? It's just five people, uh, you know, or whatever, or six people or seven, I don't know how many people are exactly there. But the thing is, it's a bunch of people around the table doing make-believe, right? It's 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 basically what you do when you're younger, but in a more, you know, uh, bureaucratic way, I guess, uh, in, <laughs> in a certain way, right? Um, but the, but the but the reason why that works, I guess, even though you're all in a shared delusion or whatever it is, is because it's fun, right? You you can all see what the other person is seeing. You don't necessarily need assets or or tools in order to make it. Your your imagination is good enough. So you know, I guess what's really striking to me is we've spent so much time talking about the cool tech and the and how the tech can do it without really talking about how the storytelling can evolve, right? And how, you know, we can create these worlds together. We've created the worlds technologically, but how do we create the worlds from a storytelling angle? How do we do it in a way that actually it resonates with people, that doesn't feel forced, that that actually works together? Um, you know, because we're so used to hearing great creative endeavors, right? Or the mind of Tim Burton or a Steven Spielberg production or something like that, right? Um, there's a reason for that. Right, because storytellers are good at what they do, and the collective is good too. But some, it's it's nice to have sort of a a, a hand at the wheel, I guess. Uh, in, in you know, a, you do need a dungeon master to marshal people, right? I can imagine that a bad dungeon master can lead to some suboptimal results uh, in Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. I'm sure, right? Um, so you know, it's it's pretty interesting to think about and. It goes to what uh, everyone was talking about in terms of, you know, what we'll, we'll talk about with regard to comic books, right? And creative stories and storytelling. And, you know, I don't know what your history with comic books is, Philip, but I'll, I'll just share mine a little bit. You know, I'm, I read comic books a lot uh, when I was a kid, just simply because my family ran a store and we always had free comics around. Mm. Um, you know, uh, doesn't mean that I'm a collector or that I really enjoyed them, you know, to, to a large extent. In fact, I'm uh, you know, you and I have talked about how I feel about like, uh, you know, Marvel and Endgame and Infinity War and stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I've got superhero fatigue. But uh, but what's really interesting to me is that, you know, fans criticize story a lot. Right. Hmm. But it, it, it there's it's a top down model. It's distribution. Right. You've got the big distributor. You know, yes, you've got the creatives, but they still bow down to the distributor. Uh, and, and it's it's, you know, Marvel or DC. And they're the ones that shepherd the character because they've got all the IP rights. Right. Um, you know, even when I was younger. I sort of chased at that because I was just like, well, why isn't there more burgeoning? Why are these stories so generic? And why are we fighting this? We see, you know, seeing the same fight between Spider-Man and Craven the Hunter like the millionth time. Like, who the hell cares about Craven the Hunter? <laughs> you know, it's a guy in a hunting outfit, right? Um, 
you know, I mean, were you as frustrated by that sort of linearity or that one directional sort of, uh, you know, comic book experience as I was, or were you, were you more, did you, were you more accepting of the creative process and of that, of that, you know, unit directionality than I was? So my, my knowledge of the history of the comic book industry is, I think, not as, a, not as in-depth as yours, but when I, I came to comics through Image and Dark Horse. So in my experience, it was not sort of big, you know, big comic running the show. It was much more an artist-driven uh, enterprise. And in that, those artists sort of really had a chance to sort of go off on their own and do something new. And they did some amazing things. I mean, the comics that I, I have are, I mean, I think if, if I have a Marvel, I think I've got a spider. I think I've got a Spider-Man, and I think when Venom, the, when Venom first came out, um, I think I've got sort of that series when he was introduced as a character. But most of my comics are Image, right? Most of it is like, uh, or, or Dark Horse, and I was more into that for because the stories were cool. Um, I think that the art was really cool. I mean, the X-Men that I was reading when I was in elementary school, the art was just mm, it was okay, but it wasn't great. Whereas Image, I, I, the Wetworks was the first uh, title that I really I bought and loved and have all of, and the art there is just freaking it's just incredible. It blew my mind that sort of this could happen. And then you know Spawn had been out for a while, and anyway, in that sense, I did I didn't come to comics through big comic. I came through through small comic, if you will. And I think, and maybe my history might be wrong here. But there also came a time when big comic realized that small comic was doing better. And all of a sudden you had this sort of huge explosion of possibilities, right? I feel like the, you want to talk about you know, Marvel and superhero fatigue. I feel I've got a little bit of multiverse fatigue because they're trying so hard, but comics have been, you know, uh, sharding and retconning forever. And there are so many different paths that Spider-Man has taken. Um, there's so many different paths that, that Superman has taken and actually a colleague of ours, John Puro, he's an attorney here at Super Lawler, recommended to me years ago, a comic called Red Sun, which is this very simple premise that, you know, um, Clark Kent's, uh, ship crashed in Soviet Russia, not Kansas. And you sort of go from there and it's, it's brilliant. It's really good. And that idea of sort of, um, multiplicity of possibility, uh, came to be in, I think comics. And I mean, I, I guess the choose your own adventures were there first, but they kind of went that way. And in a sense, the metaverse, I hope, is that for what we're now calling traditional media, right? Where if these powers that be, the ones that hold IP out here, want to sort of use it, they'll let people run with it. Fan fiction is a thing, right? Some of it is terrible. I am not interested in Tyrannosaurus romance novels, right? But some people love that stuff and they go bananas for it. And they will, you know, all of a sudden you'll see Wolverine and a, and a Velociraptor, you know, having a love scene in a romance book. And it's just like, you know what? That's not me, but I love that somebody's doing it. Somebody cares enough to go for it. And if people are motivated to do that because they can own a piece of it and the owners of those properties are sort of willing to let people run with it, then we're looking at, you know, I, I hope a beautiful garden of media, you know, some garden is going to be those corpse flowers that are disgusting. I don't want to go near it, but nonetheless, they exist. And it's that sort of variety of possibility that makes nature work. And I think it's going to make the metaverse work if we let it. You know, one of the words that you used was if the publishers let or, or you know, it was that idea of ownership, right? And the thing yeah. about it is the reason why I've been so concerned about, you know, or bored with the 
you know, uh, the comics industry for a long time is because they tell the stories that they want to say. And obviously, you know, if they're creative enough or they're desperate enough, they'll reach out and then they'll, they'll ape, uh, you know, the Dark Horse comics and the, the more artiste driven works and things like that. Um, and Red Sun was a pretty good arc, I, I will say. Um, but the thing about it is it still comes down to they have the control, they exercise the distribution, you know, that's the traditional model, right? Um, with the metaverse and the storytelling, uh, you know, how does it not turn into just bags and bags of terrible fan fiction, right? Because we, we don't want to see that either, right? We don't want to see a single point of control that can shut down all the good ideas, which happens a lot in a, across entertainment. But we also don't want to see, you know, piles and piles of dreck that we have to go through to find the one story that's interesting, because that's a waste of our time. And frankly, who has the energy to do that, right? Um, you know, so how, you know, if we're thinking about the difference, uh, you know, what the metaverse offers in the future, you know, who should set the tone? And obviously we talk about this with Evan as well, but like who sets the tone? Who should set the tone? You know, um, how how does ownership work in that kind of case, right? Because the thing is, if there's a bunch of people telling a part of the story, you know, does the dungeon master then get the keys to the to the IP? I mean, how does how should that work in your opinion, Philip? I mean, I have some thoughts, but I'm curious as to what you what you think as well. But I think that there are two different questions, right? Who gets to control and how should ownership work? I think that who gets to control is a dangerous question um, I, because it assumes that we need someone that will. Uh, I mean, right now we have mountains of dreck <laughs> being written and we for a long time had publishers play that gatekeeping role and they still do for sure. Um, but with the, the advent of the internet, all of a sudden a lot of that dreck is available for us if you want it. And we still, you know, aren't necessarily bombarded by it. We just have different curators, right? I mean, there's a million Instagram accounts telling you about which, which books are great, which music is new and great, which exercise equipment is new and great, or which everything is new and great. I mean, people love to curate, right? I feel like uh, we were talking about this last night and my son was blown away that um, you can be a critic for, for a living, that all you have to do is eat other people's food. <laughs> And you can you just talk about it and you can sort of do that because he's, we watch a lot of Great British Breaking Show and he's very good at critiquing the meals that are, he's put in front of him. Anyway, that's a human drive as well. So I feel like how will we sort of find, you know, the, the wheat from the chaff and that's, people will do it. You say, who has the time to do that? Not many of us, Jason, but those of us that do love it. And they will sit down and watch every single Hallmark movie about, you know, big city person goes to little town and meets, you know, old love interest and they get together and hey, happy Christmas, right? That's, that's happening 55 times. But you and I both know we can go on to any social media site and say, what's the best Hallmark movie? And we'll get several responses because people have watched them all. So in that sense, I'm not worried about good and bad coming up. We're going to find our tribes. Those tribes are going to sort of have common interests and we're going to sort of come up with it. As for ownership, um, I mean, there's a, this is a spectrum, right? And there's a fellow whose name I don't want to get wrong. I want to say James Boyle. I don't know if that's right. But he's a professor of law out of, I think, Duke or North Carolina. And wherever he is, I, I apologize to whichever of those communities I just insulted. He wrote a book called The Public Domain. And it's all about, as he describes it, the overreach of IP at the moment and how powerful the public domain is. The example that always comes to mind from his book 
is um, Danger Mouse's Gray album, where Danger Mouse took the Beatles' White album and Jay-Z's Black album and put them together. And it was genius, but it was completely bootlegged, right? He got no rights. <laughs> he got, sought no permission. And so it, it died. It didn't go anywhere. Like, we, we can't find it now. Like, I think if you sort of look deep in the internet, you'll find some copies of it. But his argument is, like, that's an overreach of creativity, right? It shouldn't be the case that we should stop things that are new because the owners say no. I, that sounds sort of insane to sort of, I think, a 21st century, early 21st century lawyer, because we're like, no, 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 that's exactly what I'd be supposed to be able to do, just to be able to stop people. Um, but I feel like then we take a step back, talk with the different flavors of IP. I think trademarks, definitely, right? We don't want counterfeit goods. That's, I think, necessary. Patents, okay, right? That's a big trade-off. You know, it, I can stop you, but the trade-off is I have to tell you exactly what I'm doing and how. So that when my period of monopoly ends, anybody can do it. That's, you know, that seems to be a balance. I feel like if anything, copyright it hasn't found that. And copyright, I think, is the IP that's going to be dealing a lot in the metaverse, more so than the others. Copyright right now is so artist friendly, right? The creator has it immediately. Um, whatever they create is theirs. I think it's theirs plus 70 years after they die, right? And it's just, you know, what you do is you lock up these things forever. Um, and it makes it really difficult to sort of use them in new and interesting ways. So when you say, what are we gonna do about ownership? I don't think that's a metaverse question. This is very much sort of an IP out in the world question. I think the metaverse offers the possibility that more people will own what they create, right? But is that gonna stop people from preventing them from using their properties? No, because I feel like IPs out here is too strong. But my real last point real quick is we've been sort of working with this world for a while, right? I mean, copyright has been this strong now for many, 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 many years, and things haven't stopped being creative. They just got really different. I mean, one of my favorite subreddits is writing prompts, where I'll just, you know, browse that for a while. And all it is, is people, you know, come up with some ridiculous scenario, like <laughs> you wake up, the ship you thought you were on is currently populated by giant spiders. One of them offers you a cup of tea. That's it. And then every and then every other person who responds to it sort of takes off from that and just writes a story of sorts, right? It's it's brief, it's read, it can't be that long. But it's fun. And what you have is this happens every day, hundreds of times. And I feel like that's people operating within the confines of sort of I mean, sometimes they use existing characters, but more or less it's just people being creative, you know, no matter what, no matter our confines. So I think who's gonna control things? I don't think anybody, and I think that's good. How's ownership going to work? I think that's a question we need to fix out here and in the metaverse. The metaverse offers the possibility for more ownership, and that I think is a good thing. But ownership is different from permission. And right out here, permissions are a mess that we haven't figured out. But, you know, I, I, I differ a little bit because I do think ownership and, and well, first of all, control and ownership are, are a little bit more linked. But also, I do think that in terms of control, there, there's different flavors, right? So, for instance, like, you know, uh, it, there is a prime storyline, right? And you can do artistic, you know, a, an IP holder can let you, a copyright holder can let you do a, a, a spinoff piece or things like that, right? They can give you permission. Or uh, the other part is transformation, right? That you can take something and you can transform it so much, right? Uh, that it, it's, it goes beyond being derivative and all that kind of stuff. And it's an entirely, it's a new thing entirely. And, you know, you, you, 
with that gray album, you could have argued that it was it's either, or the entire mashup genre is so different that it's changing everything altogether. Although I do believe that the the, the mashup artists lost that battle, right? Uh, or at least seeded that battle because publishers have a ton of money, right? Mm -hmm. and, and artists have a and generally have much more money to to to, to challenge these things in court uh, than 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 other people, right? Um, the the thing that's really interesting to me here, beyond just you know prime storyline versus you know is it derivative, is it not derivative. Is, is really the fractionalization of elements of a story, right? So for instance, like if I have a character that I develop, right? And Evan talks to, to us a little bit about this and I build the backstory, I, I, I work with the publisher or the person that controls to, to integrate into the story. How do we fractionalize that ownership that where they own that character? We've never had to do that before, right? You know, like if I, going back to Top Gun Maverick, I know at the end of the day, uh, Paramount owns everything, right? Uh, you know, like uh, the stories, uh, the whatever, you know, they license the music, but everything in terms of that world is owned by them, right? But what happens when we really use the metaverse to Dungeons and Dragons it and create elements of story together, right? So, you know, control we can, we can disagree on or agree on, but there's definitely different elements of ownership that are happening here, right? It's it's not just one single thing that's being owned anymore. It, we're all sort of agreeing to a more co collective sort of ownership of a story, of the direction of the story, you know. And and how we operationalize that is a question, right? Do we use things like DAOs to 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 democratize the uh, you know the storytelling process, or do we do we trust the dungeon master or the or the metaverse gatekeeper or whoever it is or macroverse with with Evan to 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 gatekeep that? Like, how will it work in the future? And I don't think we have an answer to be clear, right? I mean, as as attorneys, I think we're we're figuring this out as we go along. But you know, in your estimation, I mean, does this complicate things, or am I overthinking it? And it, are there existing IP tools to deal with it that can deal with it easily? I don't think you're overthinking it. I, but I think, again, I think we're at that point where I see a feature and you see a bug. I think that like it, it is the case that we might have dungeon masters, right? Like if, if Neil Gaiman wants to sort of run a story in the metaverse, right, as DM and let the rest of us participate, there's a, I mean, there's a million people who are going to want to do that. Millions of people are going to want to do that. At the same time, if a group of people who have been sort of playing together or the same game, right, get together and they say, you know what, let's let the 15 of us, you know, really curate this story and we'll have, you know, co-direction and we'll really take our time, we'll think it through. It's gonna be a really long form, long arc story and they wanna do it like a DAO, that's great. It could be a school project, right? Where, you know, Mr. Chung's uh, freshman year class and he came and get together and they tell a story. And that is, you know, another way to go about it. I feel like one of the beauties of this new technology in terms of ownership is fractionalization is possible. The granularity of fractionalization is going to, is a problem to solve, right? Because you can have sort of layers upon layers upon layers of things, right? Just, you know, take any example, a skin in Fortnite. For example, you've got you know the the skin as a composite piece, right? That could be one non fungible token. You can then take pieces of it, um, the boots and the pants and the belt and the vest and the kerchief and, and the antlers, right? And the the tail and the eyes and the spirit orbs, whatever you want to be. 
all of these things can themselves be separate pieces that can be owned. And then all of their variations can be owned, right? So in that sense, we now have that technology where it's not just I own the art in the filing cabinet upon which this digital instantiation is based. Now you can actually own that digital instantiation and fractionalize all of them. I want to say infinitely. I don't know if that's technically possible, but enough that it feels infinite. Conceptually so, possible. There it is, mathematically so. So in that sense, I feel like the ownership problem isn't solved, right? Because we don't know what to do with this new power. But once we have, I mean, listen to the lawyers talk about how great the lawyers are. Once the lawyers figure out how to contractually, you know, manage the possibilities of ownership, I think that we'll have um, a, a way to accomplish exactly what you're talking about. Ownership that can happen in a variety of flavors, um, control that can happen in a variety of flavors. Again, though, I want to stress that we need permissions. I think it's necessary that if I own a thing, and this is why I think Web3 ties in, some of the reason that one could imagine the people that were controlling, you know, Jay-Z's music and the people that were controlling the Beatles music got upset at the Grey album is they weren't getting a cut, right? Because if you if you bootleg like that, if you if you mash up like that, then you're not paying the right money to the right people and people get angry. One of the beauties of technology is we can automate all of that. So that if you are in fact using a thing and this thing and you put them together, whether the owners of these things want to or not, they'll still get paid. And to me, that's enough. I shouldn't be able to say yes or no. I should be able to say, you know, I have to get some value for what I've done. And as if that's automated, then great. I can disavow and say, you know, I made this character and I in no way endorse that storyline that is not official. That's fine. You can have canon and not canon, but I still don't think I should be able to say, no, stop. You know, it's interesting because I, I don't think it's just a feature or a bug. I think the bugs are features, uh, you know, so, uh, <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, uh, the, the thing that concerns me from a storytelling st standpoint and things like that, you know, and creative and creative control and all that kind of stuff is that bands and, and good things break up all the time over control and money, frankly. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and that's that's just me being a realist about it and, and just thinking about human nature. Right. It's just, you know, every, there's there's always going to be conflict when it deals with with things that are creative and, and egos get involved and, and and money gets involved. Right. Um, where I think it's really interesting is, yes, I do think that fractionalization of this, it shouldn't be as scary to people as expected, you know, like I think there's a there's a really good opportunity here for a bunch of creatives uh, to start building new stuff together in a really cool way. Right. Uh, and fractionalize uh, different parts of the ownership. Right. Why should why should you have to argue with ASCAP over who uh, gets put on the writing credits? Right. So you can get a fractions of a penny for every time a song, a song gets streamed. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. If you can do that through smart contracts and you can all agree, hey, look, this was the contribution. This was not. And it can all be automated. Guess what? You don't have to argue <laughs> anymore. You don't have to engage. Uh, and this is my nightmare. You don't have to engage lawyers all the time to do this kind of stuff, right? Um, but at the same time, these conversations need to be had ahead of time, right? Yeah. I think where it's sort of interesting to me now is people are building these sort of tools and saying, hey, we, we're going to all share Kumbaya. We're going to go towards Web3, Metaverse, uh, storytelling. It's going to be awesome. We're going to own stuff. You're going to own stuff. But then the mechanics are just... Huh? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, 
do I own 50%? Do I own 30%? Do I have a say? Do I get to negotiate? Is it an automatic uh, smart contract? Is it is is it a is it an adhesion contract where I just, you know, like all of these things have not been figured out, which is which is fair because granted, lawyers are are always a cost center to a certain degree, right? You know, we're not we're not the ones driving it. We're the ones that have to make sure that nobody loses their shirt, right? But in this case, I do think that there's some pre-work that can be done by a lot of companies, a lot of uh, storytellers, a lot of creatives to help ask the right questions and just be like, hey, at, who, you know, what does the actual fractionalization of this ownership look like? You know what I mean? Like, you know, how are we going to operationalize it? What happens if I want to take this and then make a song with it, right? Which is like like League of Legends, uh, like Riot Games is taking League of Legends stuff and making like shows and like, and, and and music and all that stuff. And that's great. But the thing about it is that's because they're one publisher. But what happens if all of these different characters or people who created characters don't want to participate in every aspect of that? Like, to your point, can they just shut down sort of the, the, the K-pop version of, of your mage because you don't like your mage? singing because it's and because he's a silent mage why would he be singing right like these are things that, that that these are questions that i don't i think you know are are kind of ludicrous to think about in in a vacuum right like yeah. it's very hard to imagine these things in a vacuum but they're going to come up right like i mean there's a there's a reason why lawyers are going to still going to be around in the metaverse yes i mean you're right I and mean, i feel like that stuff like i said has to be answered out here and in there um and i think that uh, to, to be quite honest, Macroverse's approach to it is is really interesting. So, I you know we had we MetaSapiens have had the conversation with Epen, which was sort of motivated the conversation that Jason and I just had. But Macroverse is squarely addressing all of these questions and doing so. In in my opinion, I think I can speak for Jason on this one in a really interesting, creative, and, and groundbreaking way. So, <clears throat> with that said, I mean I will say you know this is a fundamental discussion that Jason and I have had several times. I think that it's certainly not done. You know, I think we are we are at that point of all great podcasts where we've ended with more questions than we <laughs> began, um, as it should be. But as we explore them, you know, bringing in other voices is a, is a great thing. So we've spoken to Eben. We think he's got some perspectives here that neither Jason nor I would have thought of because his experience is, is way different than ours. So with that, I think we can throw it to the interview. And I think you should enjoy this, everyone. It's a great talk. It's a really interesting company. And I think you'll also find that at the end of this conversation, there are more questions than answers, but that's a good thing. Always more questions. And now to the interview. Hello and welcome MetaSapiens. Today we're speaking with Evan Matthews, co-founder of Macroverse, a Web3 entertainment studio whose founders have worked with some of the largest properties in the entertainment space, such as Disney, Pixar, and WWE. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch that I haven't mentioned. Uh, he'll be speaking to us today about making content in Web3 and what that actually means for the Metaverse. Evan, thank you Sarah, so much for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, it, this is my favorite thing to talk about. So uh, forgive me, forgive me for being overly exuberant as we get into it. <laughs> I love it. I love uh, great exuberance, and hopefully, it's not irrational exuberance, which is great. So, uh, well, you know, uh, have, first off, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I want to start with is, you know, if you could first explain a little bit more about Macroverse, yeah, and really how you got into this space altogether. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to put this kind of through the lens of my secret origin story, which will give you kind of both my background, how we got to Macroverse, how we got to Web3 and kind of all these puzzle pieces. Because for me, this 
this all does tie together. This is kind of the culmination of the journey that, you know, has, has got me here. So to, to go all the way back, you know, I've been a geek nerd fan of, you know, content and, and all the franchises that people love since I was a, you know, tiny little person. I learned to read from comic books. I've been a lifelong comics fan. Um, I've been an artist my whole life. So I started, you know, drawing when I was two years old. I ended up going to art school. Um, kind of funny that I, my my mom, as a quick side note, is probably one of the few parents on the planet that talked me out of going to law school to go to art school. <laughs> um, <laughs> so went to art school, uh, and I thought I would come out and draw comics. Like that was always my ambition as a kid. And you know, through that process, instead, I came out, recruited some of my friends, and started my first company. And so I had a branding and media agency for about a decade. And if people remember, right when Flash was taking over the web, this was like lots of interactive animation websites, um, you know, that was our sweet spot. And so we got very engaged in these kind of high-end interactive web development. And I basically built my whole career in that company initially with the, the framework of kind of like people would call, we were just kind of small, you know, scrappy agency doing big work for big clients. People would call and go like, hey, can you make a car screech across the browser and have some, you know, monsters jump out at the end and like we'll sell people, you know, Nissans and, and uh, <laughs> we would go, of course, we do this stuff all day long, no problem. And then I would get off that call and go like, okay, great. How are we going to do this? Who do we need? Who, I, who do I have to find? You know, who do we have to put together as a team? And so we stayed this kind of very scrappy company where I got really good at finding the right pieces for each project to do something really cool. And so I'd say that's kind of like my core skill set at this point is like how to put these different puzzle pieces together to make cool stuff. Hmm. And so the, you know, the kind of next step in that journey was I became friends with now one of my co-founders and, you know, we've been, this is 20 years ago now. So we became friends and he was coming up in traditional film and television. We're both in Los Angeles and he was on the production side. When I met him, he was working on the first Transformers movie. And as we became friends, and you know, I like to admit probably over a couple of drinks, we had this kind of simultaneous realization together, which was like, you know, we've got these cool career paths, but we're just going to be making stuff for other people for the rest of our lives. Mm. And we really both wanted to flip to the other side of that equation and be more in charge of creating content, making our own stuff. This is kind of post Tarantino 90s indie film, you know, renaissance. And so being in Los Angeles, how does one do that? You write a screenplay, you become a famous director. That was our plan. So we wrote a screenplay. We were fortunate enough that that got optioned. That landed us at CAA, which was on the, you know, one of the big talent agencies here in LA. And then we did the water bottle tour, as they call it, where you're going and pitching lots of ideas to all the different production companies and studios. We had a couple of things which people got interested in. We wrote a TV pilot, which got you know very close to moving forward. Um, pun intended, that one got killed by The Walking Dead. Mm. And so we felt like, you know, this is not you know, like we're, we're having these conversations, but we're not still not making anything. And so we then kind of found our way into the video game world. So we spent the next decade as creative partners, started a new company together, writing, directing and producing game content. Um, we through that process, we ended up pioneering some really interesting animation techniques and kind of figuring out how to tell stories in the kind of mid-tier console game arena that led into mobile games. And so, you know, spent a decade doing that. 
And so the final piece of the puzzle that brings us to Macroverse is, you know, being a lifelong comics fan and collector, you know, why I got a chance to put a graphic novel series together for an indie film called The Boondock Saints, which has this, you know, worldwide kind of rabid fan based cult, cult classic movie. And they were getting ready to make their sequel. I got introduced to the director, ended up working with Sony and, and the, you know, kind of core creative team to put this graphic novel series together. So that's what brought me back to comics. And because of the nature of that project and because of my, as I say, kind of core skill set of putting these puzzle pieces together, I'm always the guy that's kind of crazy enough to go like, I'll figure out how to do this. Have I done it before? No, but I'll figure out how to do it. So that brought me into the comics world, finding a publisher, dealing with distribution, getting a deal signed with Barnes and Noble, putting the convention tour together, like all those different pieces, as well as producing the actual material. And I came out of that experience with this real 360 degree, you know, kind of view of what the comics industry looks like. Um, and the big things, the big takeaways were, this is a great way to make content because obviously the connection between comics and Hollywood and gaming and like all of the rest of the entertainment ecosystem has never been stronger, but the economics for creators especially is absolutely terrible. And the industry itself is this 50-year-old business model that's, you know, very stuck in a way of doing things, you know, very fearful of kind of reinvention. And, you know, this was years ago now, but nothing's really changed. So they've kind of been stuck in, you know, we have these 2,000 points of distribution, print is the lifeblood of this industry, like we can't push anything in a new direction, like, you know, people have tried and failed. And so we basically came out of that with like, there are two questions we need to answer here. Number one, is there a digitally native format for comics? You know, is that's it's not putting a PDF on an iPad. Is there a new experience that speaks to like, what does digital do that print can't do? So it's like, how do you lean into this new format, this new experience and still stay true to the art form? Cause that's critically important not to try to turn it into something else but use new tools and new thinking about, you know, how do you tell stories in this way? And number two was, is there a business model here that makes any sense? And so we spent a couple of years prototyping, continuing to do the other stuff we were doing, trying to figure this out. And we finally got to a point where we're like, okay, we figured out the format, very, very happy and excited about the format we created. And then number two, we figured out the business model, which is basically... The, two, the one area of the comics industry that has exploded is digital, but it's outside of the traditional industry. It's a South Korean company called Webtoon, which has built a hundred million monthly active user audience. And they've done it by being YouTube for comics. So here's completely the YouTube business model for web comics creators. And we said, if there's YouTube, where's HBO? And so that was our initial thesis was, you know, premium content, super high quality, new kind of format that, you know, really leans into what you can exclusively do in digital. And so at that point, we brought the third co-founder on, which is someone that we knew from the games industry, a guy named Ricky. Ricky has been um, involved also in gaming and entertainment for 20 plus years, responsible for 100 million uh, downloads in the, the mobile gaming world. And so the three of us got together and said, between the three of us, our superpower is we basically know how to make every type of content that exists. We've we've done it. We've done it successfully. And now we see this kind of new opportunity in the comics industry to reinvent this as a way to build kind of a next generation entertainment company, create new franchises, empower creators, you know, all these things. So 
Before Web3, we raised a seed round and launched a mobile app, started to scale that and grow customer acquisition and do all the things that one would do to do that, like Facebook ads and Instagram and you know, all that stuff. We started to see kind of good month over month growth there. And then we found ourselves in clubhouse rooms at the beginning of the pandemic, listening to people talk about NFTs. Mm. Um, I had had a little exposure to NFTs in 2018 on one of the very first kind of art platforms called Rare Art and had actually put a couple of things out and sold a couple of things on there. And we had started at that point thinking about, is there a way to integrate this into this comics thing? But then they went away and kind of they, you know, unfortunately went out of business. So I actually do have a couple of tokens out there that don't point to anything, which is, you know, a whole different <laughs> topic. <laughs> um, but you know, the, that thought process started to kind of make sense. And so when we found ourselves in these rooms and like I was there when Beeple had his Christie's auction and like in the room when that happened, I was, you know, in the room when the board apes launched and you know, didn't mint any, which I regret, but um, you know, these things were happening. And so between myself and my co-founders, we really had this moment where we were like, okay, we get this, like all this makes total sense to us. We think everything is going to get touched by this. So we have to make a real choice. Are we going to go down this road, which is where we thought we were going and that we're actually starting to see some traction and success? Or are we going to pivot? Because we're not big enough at this point to do both. So we've got to really make a decision. Are we embracing this whole Web3 thing? Or are we going to you know, go the traditional route and come back to it later? And for the three of us, after a bunch of sleepless nights in a good way, like we can't stop thinking about how this is all going to work, we, we decided to go the Web3 way. And so we've spent the last year really rebuilding our whole platform to take this format and business model concept and then expand it into a whole ecosystem where we really see this as the beginning of not just the reinvention of comics, but a whole new model for how creators and fans and contributors and participants all get to participate in the rewards that are generated by the growth of an entertainment franchise. And so the concept of aligning incentives between every participant at every stage of building these kinds of projects, that's, you know, there's a lot I get excited about, but that's the thing that I've been the most excited about over the last year as we started to build a community and put out the first handful of projects. Um, it's just awesome stuff. And these are the kinds of unlocks that I think people need to get their head around for especially NFTs and kind of my point of view on what the future of all this is. It's not just replacing something that we used to do with something that you can own. That is a big part of it, but it's what can we do now that we couldn't do before? And I think if we focus on those kind of magic moments of like, you know, this enables new things that were literally impossible without this technology, then I think we've got a real interesting unlock for lots of different arenas. And now I will shut up, <laughs> but uh, that's that's the journey, which brings us here. Yeah. I really appreciate that background. And, you know, uh, so I, I had the esports and gaming practice here, uh, you know, at Zuber Lawler, uh, but I also, uh, you know, lead the uh, esports and gaming initiative at NYU. And when I talk to students, uh, you know, about what they want to do, a lot of the time it ends up on the creative or marketing side of things, right? And, and that's where they want their career to be. But the thing that I point out to them, the thing that will always get you paid in the future is figuring out distribution, business models, and things like that. And like you said, Evan, like there's the distribution model, it, it, you know, for the comics industry is based on 
you know, dead trees, right? I mean, getting that out, putting it out there, you know, figuring out that publisher model and everything is publisher driven, which means the IP is centralized and everything like that, which is great for publishers, right? But I think what you're saying is how do you empower creators to do it? How do you offload a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the administrative side of things so people can go out and create? And I think uh, that's what you're doing. And so am I correct in thinking that, you know, with Web2 and the tools you were building, you were, you were doing very well building distribution for fungible you can read the comic you can collect the comic but the thing that's really exciting for you looking at the business side of the creative industry is that hey this is a chance for us to create non-fungible experiences we can actually mimic the the comic book trading sort of market here because you can actually own a one of one uh, uh, or one of two or something like that which you can't do in sort of like the web two space where it's all just about fungibility well, and getting it. I it think out it's there. So I, I like the, the mental framework that we kind of come back to. I you kind of call it our, our own version of kind of first principles is, you know, we have this way that we think about everything we're building as a participation spectrum. And so we really believe that people are going to find themselves somewhere along this line. And then our job is to create ways of moving along this line as you continue the journey. So you've got some people that are really, truly, especially now, just happy to pay their 10 bucks a month and watch Netflix. So it's like, just give me this kind of like passive consumer experience. I just want access to a bunch of cool stuff. And then you've got people all the way on the other side of the spectrum, which are like, no, I want to own this. I want to have something to say about it. So ownership and governance access. And then our job is like, how do you serve those two sides? And then how do you start to help people move between them? And so I think, you know, especially with, you know, comics are such a natural fit. And I kind of think of it as a little bit of a Trojan horse for the rest of the entertainment industry, because comics and collectability have always been so naturally connected. And so it's very easy for people to wrap their head around. It's, it's a little harder to think about, like, I want to own this episode of Breaking Bad. It's a little easier to wrap your head around, like, I got Spider-Man number two. Like, you know, that became relevant and therefore is more valuable. And now we can have some sort of buy-sell trade experience around these collectible pieces of entertainment and content. So I think that as a beginning framework for how do you own over here and get special rights and privileges and rewards as an owner and collector and at the same time, let people have access, you know, at an unlimited kind of just give me more cool stuff. And then you find something you love. Maybe you want to start moving towards the other side of that, that spectrum. So I think we're kind of, you know, connecting all those dots as you think about the different ways want to people want to consume and interact with content. Can I, it's, I love the Genesis. I love where you're going. Um, I love where you've been. I, was a big fan of when Image started making comics back yes, in the day. I was yes. a big fan. I've got boxes here that I don't yes. let my children read. <laughs> I've, I've got the full Wetworks run. I've got some yes. Spawn classics and whatnot. Awesome. Um, but I, I'm curious. Like I, I understand where you're going with this a spectrum yeah. of participation and ownership. Yeah. But is there space here for a spectrum of participation for creativity? Yes. Um, fan fiction, of course, is a huge thing. There's a lot of controversy right when Captain America joined Hydra, you know, the internet yeah. broke. Yeah. And so people, people really care about these things. So yeah. I'm curious, right? You've de you're definitely giving people an opportunity to own these things, but can they influence the story? 100%. So this, this is the thing that has surprised me the most over the last year, because if you had asked me prior to this Web3 journey, if I thought we would done have done anything like this, it would not have ever occurred to me, but it's become my favorite part of the space and my, actually my favorite part of what we're building. So, you know, 
as you think about kind of the final output being kind of, do you want to access it and read it? Or do you want to own it and collect it? Well, there's all the creative energy that goes into creating that final output. And so now there have been a few different ways that we've approached that. And we basically think all the content that we're making and just, you know, quick side note, we've got 40 different series in various stages of production and development. The first five are getting ready to launch with, you know, a bunch more coming down the road. So, you know, these cover every genre, every style, every kind of, you know, type of content that we think, you know, people will be into. And some of them are things like the TV pilot that got killed by The Walking Dead that we've, you know, re revived now to bring out in this format. So it's this, you know, something that's very fully formed. You know, we had a 90 page Bible that we put together for the show that kind of really has, you know, all the kind of different parts of this world. So there's something that's like very fully formed, but now we've got this community that also wants to play in this world. And so we think of each of these franchises, like these are playgrounds, these are worlds to play in. So you've got something that's very fully formed where you go like, oh, if you gave me the chance to create my own characters and stories inside the Star Wars universe, like I'm super excited about that. <laughs> yeah. And that and that already happens at the fan fiction level, but back to the idea of like, what can we do now that we could never do before? Now there's a mechanism where what we do with our own community or in the Star Wars example, what Lucasfilm could do is say like, oh man, that piece of fan fiction, that character that you created, and in our case, character that you also minted that, you know, lives inside this world, you know, that could be recognized as a canonical character that could be developed into its own storyline in this universe. And so that's been our approach is to say, okay, we did a, a character collection inside the world of Dead Town. I call them characters as opposed to PFPs because I think for our purposes, that's a little more relevant. Mm -hmm. But people create these characters. And in our in our case, we actually built a system where they can create their own characters. So it's like customize and build your own character like an avatar builder at the beginning of a game experience. You mint this character. Now you own these characters in this world, in this playground. And so we then go into our Discord community and we teach four to six week long storytelling sessions. Hmm. And so we start with, you know, kind of fundamental concepts. What do you need to understand about, you know, doing storytelling? And what we've seen over the past year is, you know, most people who are not professional writers kind of start with the same place, the, start, the same kind of starting point of like, I'm just going to think about the backstory of this character. And so that's a great starting point, but now we can kind of bring people through this process of like, okay, if you have a concept for who this character is, now we can start to think about concepts like, you know, character driving plot, not plot driving character. And so, you know, like the fundamentals of like, how do you create narrative and how do you create something compelling for an audience? And so we go through this like four to six week process doing that. And in the course of that process, people can start pitching their character ideas to the community. And then we include, you know, kind of feedback on those those pitches uh, in those sessions as well. So by the end of that four to six weeks, we've got a group of characters that have got kind of fully fleshed out short stories around them that live in this playground, this kind of larger world. And the community then votes on which ones of those gets recognized as canon. So in each kind of season of content, we've got this kind of main storyline that we're building and developing. Now we've got an anthology series, which is all coming directly from the community. And then we take six to eight of those, greenlight them into production. We use some cool stuff at the NAT NFT level where we upgrade those NFTs so they're immediately recognizable in the collection as like these are the now fully recognized canonical versions of the characters. We actually produce real episodes of the comic series 
with those characters based on those stories with the people that created them. So you get to now come into actually being a creator and go through that whole creative process. And you get to see those things become real stories that then get released on the platform. And so it kind of serves this whole flywheel of like, how do you move from fan into creator into now benefiting from the growth of the franchise directly, generating revenue from that effort and participation. And my favorite way of kind of presenting that to people is like, if you think about going back to the, the Star Wars example, if you think about Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back, like super cool character, but very much a side character in the franchise. Now you've got a whole Disney Plus TV show about it. So mm -hmm. this is kind of what we want to present to people is like, start with the Empire Strikes Back version. If we start to see that this is something that people respond to the way that people did respond to Boba Fett, let's build out a whole thing about it. And you as the originator of that and the owner of the NFT that is kind of the source of that, get all of the you know rewards that come from that. So you know you could see that character become its own series, its own show, its own you know merchandising, you know all that kind of stuff. It's like a Dungeons and Dragons model, right? Where you get the yeah. players together to decide what they're doing. Yeah. They they yeah. vote on it but all on web3. I love it cuz my yeah. my son is sort of doing campaigns. He's 11. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sorry. Awesome. So he and I sort of share this brain, right? Yes. Um and so we we enjoy a lot of the same things. And like you're talking about storytelling, because right now all of his characters sort of are all very cool, very complicated. And it's always they're on a mission. You so said your classic, you know, Arthurian legend is sort of yes, where he yes. is, which quite honestly was where stories are. It's one of the, yeah. the tropes, right? The archetypes. But the idea of getting together with other people in a way that is not just fun, but sort of meaningful in terms of ownership, it's just it's it's mind blowing. I think it's yeah. it's really cool. Um, of course, right? That's why you're doing it. I am curious though. Right. How does this because podcast, of course, called What the Meta, right? Yeah. I get, you know, the art, I get the creativity, I get how NFTs play in, I get how sort of working together works. I see how you're using tokens, right? Of different stripes. But where does this sort of lead into the metaverse? Is that a go-to for you? Is that a nice to have? Like where where do you where do you see yourself in the in, in immersed reality? Yeah. So I I take the point of view, I do not particularly buy into the metaverse as though we're all going to be strapped into, you know, VR goggles and yeah. you know eating through a tube like that that's not the version of the metaverse that i want yeah, to participate yeah, in and geez. it's also not the one that i think people are going to actually resonate with so you know i, I have a, a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and i've been watching the way they consume media which has been very influential to a lot of this thinking and watching my nine-year-old in particular i give her our kind of chief futurist hat because the way she consumes media you know, this has been a big part of our thesis from the beginning as we think about how to build not just comics, but these entertainment franchises. How do these become, you know, things that do span comics, film, TV, animation, gaming, merchandise, you know, the whole stack of what you could do with, you know, IP, so to speak. And what I noticed with her, and I do this too, but it's exponential with her, is that when she falls in love with something, she wants as many experiences of that thing as she can possibly get her hands on. So whether it was Peppa Pig when she was five, or Minecraft, or now Roblox, it's like when it's that kind of a day, you know, she's also a creative kid, you know, so it's like I watch her and it's like literally in the course of several hours, it will be play the game, watch some YouTube videos, put on a t-shirt, draw a picture, get out some kind of activity, play with the toys, pull her brother in, get with some friends online into this experience. Yeah. So it's just like, I like, there's something about this world that I'm resonating with. Give me as much of it as I can get. 
And so that's a little more of kind of how I think about where we end up in the metaverse. And then the key unlock is the interoperability of it. So I think as long as we have open standards and interoperability, then it just becomes about shared experiences. And some of those shared experiences will be game-like, and some of those shared experiences will be social, and some of those shared experiences may also be immersive in virtual reality. But I think the, the metaverse is kind of more a layer of kind of new types of experiences enabled by interoperable assets that we can take with us and evolve and continue to utilize in different ways. So, you know, I think that to me, it makes a lot more sense from a how do we think about building stuff as well. So, you know, one of the things we actually have done in all the characters that we released, um, it's kind of a fun uh, reveal for the, the community when we first did that is like you create your character, you mint your character, we've got this whole storytelling track available. But when you go and look at it on our platform, you also realize like, oh, there's an experience point system here. There's a level, there's a, a stat system here and actually kind of Dungeons and Dragons base thinking about like what's the core composable layer of information that you could then layer all kinds of experiences on top of. Mm -hmm. um, and so we built this very flexible kind of stats and reward, you know, kind of experience leveling system for these characters. And so now over time, you could take that kind of core level of functionality and plug it into a first person shooter or plug it into an RPG or plug it into a reward system on the app. You know, there's all kinds of different ways to now utilize that layer. So I think as long as we can keep these things interoperable, it's just going to enable all kinds of people to build all kinds of experiences. And the more of that that starts to happen, the more we can take our identity and our assets and our data with us between these different things. To me, that's that's my way of thinking about the metaverse. Mm. You know, <clears throat> that word interoperable comes up a lot. Uh, you know, we had a guest, David Orban, who talked about that. And we, you know, Philip and I have been talking about that in our chats together. So, you know, uh, it, it's important. But I think what's also really interesting, Evan, is you're talking about actually supporting creators as they you know, ramp up their creativity at giving them tools, but that's a, that's a very human bi-directional, uh, multi-directional process, right? Which oh, to be fair, I think a lot of companies that we've heard of or know don't really participate in that, right? They just, they basically just say, hey, you can buy a character from us and then, yeah, we might throw it into a story or whatever. I heard a lot of that NFT, NYC, right? Yeah. But the thing about it is, you know, how do you actually, what do we do with the story? Can you participate in the storytelling aspect of it? All of that is not is not there, and 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 you know if you could you know in the, in the metaverse, do you view that as an opportunity for us to play a little bit more together, right? Like for instance, so you know of course there are world builders, and there are always going to be world builders, just like video games and comic books and all that kind of stuff. But there have to be characters within that world and bringing more diverse voices into that world. Yeah. You know yeah. what is the human aspect? Are we back? Are we kind of lacking the human aspect of of the metaverse? Is is I guess my ultimate question. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it depends, again, sort of on how you think about it. So, you know, I think the, the open interoperable component of it to me is the thing that, you know, just ongoingly has the potential to empower that kind of diversity. Because I think, you know, the, the key thing which people like to point to, and I completely agree with, is it's, you know, the open standards of the internet that allow for everything that's come good and bad, um, you know, uh, on top of that new infrastructure, you know, so whether you're, you know, a fan of, of being on, uh, you know, early chat rooms and, you know, web one, or it's, you know, 
your favorite doom scrolling on Instagram or, you know, whatever in between, um, you know, it's like these things are only possible because of that open interoperability, because of those open standards. And so I do think like fundamentally that has to be in place for any of the things that we all want to see as results of this metaverse conversation. Um, and then maybe to be a little more specific about your question, I think that to me, the human, it's funny, like, especially in the wake of FTX and, you know, kind of the downturn and what, you know, the, the bear market and everything that we're kind of dealing with right now and seeing right now some contraction around usage and, you know, people being a little more like, wait, is this really still a thing? And like all of those conversations, I think that to me, the place we have to focus and what actually keeps me still excited about everything that we're building and actually kind of feel more excited about everything that we're building in the wake of all that in some ways is that I think we now have to, as a community, start to turn our attention to not just the slot machine of this, not just the like, hey, I can buy something and turn it around tomorrow for a big profit, but the real use cases. And like, what does this actually do for us as individuals, for us as a community, for us as the larger, you know, human experience, so that we are building things that are meaningful to us as individual people and as larger collectives of people that want to accomplish things. Mm -hmm. And I think for any new technology to really have a meaningful impact in our lives, like we have to find those things. They have to unlock new things that matter to us. And we can debate all day long, like what should matter to us or not, or, you know, what drain on our attention is worth it or not. But fundamentally like we either really care about something or we don't and money can't be the only equation in that the only factor in that so I, I i hear you right and um i love that you are sort of really leaning into uh creativity the social aspect of it like you said the the immersive aspect as your nine-year-old's experiencing i get that my <laughs> kids columbus fgt in for a month that's all there was in my house yeah. so i i hear you so now and I, I hear you hinting at it, right? Where we have to sort of find something other than money that motivates us. So yeah. I'm going to put my Esquire fun killer hat on and yeah, ask, please. what are you doing about IP, right? Yeah. Intellectual yeah. property is designed on the idea that there's sort of one central owner. And that yeah. was exploited by the structure that you're talking about in, you know, in the business, right? Where middlemen sort of take from the creators. Uh, no offense to middlemen, but honestly, guys, relax. Yeah. So <laughs> I, the question then becomes, how are you doing this? It sounds like you're using tokens, right? You're sort of doing this in a way that's, um, my guess is smart contractually, but are there also contracts? Are you having the company retain sort of just a, a toe in the water? Like, uh, by all means, don't reveal your secret sauce, but you must be addressing this problem. And I'm wondering uh -huh. how. I'm happy to reveal the secret sauce because I think it's a it's a good way. It's it's one good way of going about this. I think, you know, when it comes to intellectual property rights and NFTs, especially and especially characters, let's you know say character NFTs or story NFTs, potential story NFTs. You know, I think we've basically seen two models. We've seen the like very still very controlled kind of some level of centralized control um, where, you know, like Tim Ferriss just released an NFT project and he's been very explicit about like, no, I am controlling all of this. There may come a point where I let people play, but until I know what that is, just I'm doing all this. So like, mm -hmm. come on for the ride if you want. I love that if you're upfront about it, like, mm -hmm. like let people know what journey they're going to go on with you. So I think this is the biggest challenge is like just making it explicit as to like, here are the rules that we're playing in here. Do you want to play this game or do you want to play some other game? And I think people get upset when they don't understand, you know, what those rules are. So you got one side of the spectrum, which is like, you know, I'm going to control all this. Do you want to come along for my 
experience that I'm going to provide for you. Then you've got kind of the labs model, which is a little more like, yeah, we kind of own the core of this, but we're going to basically not interfere with anyone that wants to do anything with their individual characters, their individual pieces of IP. And I think that's been incredibly powerful for that ecosystem. You know, it's become one of the dominant ways that people have kind of treated, you know, NFTs. And then all the way on the other side of that, you got the whole CC0, you know, anyone can do anything. There's no productions, no copyright. And that creates a whole different kind of opportunity for creators to build on top of. And, and so, you know, we're, we're actually playing in all three of those sandboxes, those, mm -hmm. those approaches simultaneously with our own little twist on it, which is that, like, well, I'll, I'll continue to use Deadtown as the example. So, you know, we've got this this franchise that we have lots of very specific, you know, this is a story that we are telling that we want to tell that, you know, we wanted to tell as a show and now is being told in this, this, you know, comic format. We've got these anthology stories, which have all been created by the community. So when those are recognized as canon, and now we're actually producing new content that lives in this, you know, very much more centralized world as far as the control of the of the the underlying kind of core IP. We it is a trade off. So we we are very explicit with this with those people. Like if we greenlight this, if we put this into production, which involves you know putting money into it and bringing on a team and like building this thing out, then we actually at that point do need to bring in unfortunately a more traditional legal framework. And so that becomes a kind of license agreement from those people back to us. And so there's a real explicit way of saying like, you are now the owner and creator of this character. We now have the exclusive rights to exploit that in this context. And as a result of that, we can pay you. <laughs> so, um, so that becomes a little more of a formalized, you know, arrangement between us and those particular creators. Where we are keeping it more open is we say, if you don't want, if that's not the game that you want to play, if you want to take these characters and do something else with it, you want to build your own brand, even if you want to tell your own stories, as long as they're not saying that they're in this world, go for it, like do whatever you want. And so that's how we've kind of split that, you know, that terrible term, but that's kind of how we've split that baby. <laughs> that like, you know, we can kind of do everything we want to do over here and really be focused on how do we turn this into a much larger entertainment franchise? Because I think at this point, there's a lot of ways to involve the community in doing that. But I think it does require some real specific directional intention to build that kind of a thing. And at the same time, there's a lot of value in saying, and here's this other side of the playground where you can just go nuts. Like you wanna build something else, do it and we'll support it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're kind of getting getting the best of both worlds there. And then the, the final thing I'll say about that is, you know, we've also been working with a couple of projects where we came in much earlier in the process. So there've been a couple of NFT projects that we partnered with where they had already launched their PFP collection. They knew they wanted to do something with storytelling and they didn't quite know what it was. And so the approach we took there was this same kind of four to six week storytelling session, but now we're really starting at ground zero. So once we get past the kind of initial, you know, here are some things to think about as far as being a storyteller, then we start going like, okay, what is this world? Who are these characters? Why are they here? Like, you know, how does this all work? And so very much within the community of holders, figuring out that initial framework that kind of now what is the playground that we're now going to be, you know, working inside of. 
And so that's been really fun too, to be able to kind of direct that process, but really take the community feedback for like, you know, how does this all work and come together? It's, it's made me feel that one of the core skill sets when we look at the intersection of NFTs and entertainment that I think is going to be really valuable. So people that are out there who want to break into entertainment, you know, I think this is something to be thinking about. I think there's a real role for what I would call like the showrunner on steroids. Mm. So like, you know, in a TV show, you know, you've got a showrunner, which is kind of responsible for the vision of this whole thing and putting all the pieces together for the production of this thing. And typically on a you know TV show, you might have six to 10 people in a writer's room. And now you've got a community where you might have 60 or 600 or 6,000 people in a writer's room. So I think it's a very specific skill set to be able to take that conversation of, you know, 60 or hundreds of people and say, we're going to all come together and have a conversation. Anyone who wants to participate can. And now how do I take all these different voices and all these different ideas and go, which of these things are kind of headed generally in the same direction? And how do we bring those things together so that they all make sense together? Which of these ideas are kind of diametrically opposed? And how are we going to solve that? And so being able to kind of have that conversation and steer that conversation and have everybody feel like they've genuinely been able to participate in solving those problems is pretty magical. And so there's a couple of projects that we've done that with. And now we've you know gone through that process with the community. So now we kind of are back where we started with something like Deadtown, where it's like now there's a you know, there's a Bible that's been created. People understand what has been generated by the community. And now we can kind of build more storylines within this world. Um I it's love a lot it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's macroverse, right? Uh, yeah. incu incubator, production house, yeah. coach. <laughs> I mean, so you're doing so many things here. Um, but but again, like it has to happen because the, the universe yeah. of creativity is big enough that having all these possibilities in front of you and managing them um, is just it's a it's a really big task. Um, so I mean, I'm, best of luck, right? I mean, it's been yeah. a, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I mean, this is just it's a really interesting conversation. I love sort of where you've been and what you're doing with it. It's it's so much fun. I think you're touching on so many possibilities in in Web three. It's just a real pleasure to have you on. Yeah, man. It's it's I I can you you could have me for another hour. I won't stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> we just might. Genuinely, still the the reason that I wake up excited every morning, and that's been true since we, you know, since we started the company, but even more so since we kind of started in this direction. Because I think the exciting thing for us, and I think the exciting thing for everyone that still feels compelled to kind of push in this direction, is that it is uncharted territory. And so I think if you are of the if if you have the right kind of mentality and perhaps the right kind of insanity <laughs> to go, like you know. Nobody really knows what this is yet, but we're going to start moving forward and try to figure it out together. You know, I think that's the magic of it. And I think the the ethos of the space is, you know, just is is also what I think has been so inspiring to me. And I think for so many people is that despite some of the challenges that the industry has faced, there's still a sort of underlying welcoming, you know, kind of we're all trying to get somewhere better together, you know, exactly what that is might, you know, not look the same to everybody, but it does feel like there's more cooperation than competition in a lot of ways. Um, at, a, at a conversation with another company that's doing stuff kind of in the NFT comic side of things, they're actually a, a very well-known brand in the traditional comics world. And, you know, the CEO of this company said to me is like, you know, there needs to be 30 of us for this to really matter. 
And I was like, you know, that actually yeah, makes a lot of sense. So it's mm -hmm. like, you know, one of the things that I see, which I also encourage people to do is like, look around at who you might conceive as your competitors and figure out how to cooperate. Because I do think, you know, there's so many things that we need to build. And one of the things I see a lot of people doing is trying to build the same things in different ways. And so it's like, you know, how do we find ways to, you know, like, great, I'll tackle this, you tackle that. And let's see if we can, you know, make something better together. Yeah. Uh, it's like we need to decentralize the project. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> can I just plug real quickly here at the end? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we are getting very close to the launch of the first collectible comics, uh, you know, editions that we're putting out. We've got some really cool mechanics in the way that the collection works. Um, there's actually some really huge incentives for people that collect these initial editions as far as how they benefit from the expansion of the ecosystem over time. Um, we've been able to pull together a collection of artists that you know, range from really well-known Marvel and DC comics artists to people that are well-known in the crypto space and kind of bringing those worlds together. Um, so, you know, we've got some really exciting things on the, the creative side. You know, I am a massive fan, biased, of course, of all the different series, but I think we've done some phenomenal, you know, storytelling. So, you know, just if you, if you like great content, like we've got some great content for you. Um, and these are super limited editions. So this is like really the Genesis collection for everything that we're building on the comic side. So a thousand of them for each series, um, you know, different types of rarity based on the artists that are involved in the covers. And what we didn't talk about, and I'll end with this, is that, you know, the format that we developed is really unique. Like we've had to invent some things here. So when we said earlier, this is not a PDF on an iPad. These are fully packaged, interactive experiences in your NFT. So when you buy this collectible edition of the comic, it's like having the full graphic novel. So when you buy, sell, trade these things, you know, it is not just a token that gives you access to something. The full experience is packaged in this NFT. Um, and that's it's pretty breakthrough in that regard and pretty awesome. So uh, I, I encourage people to check it out. There's a lot more information on our website at macroverse.com, you know, macroverse HQ on Twitter. Um, but, uh, we've got some really fun stuff in store for everybody. So I hope people will check it out. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you very much. Bye.